The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Welcome to Stock Take. My name is Gaurav Sodi. Joining me today is Research Director Nathan Bell. Hey, Nathan. Hey, Gaurav. Just the two of us today. We haven't had you on the podcast for a while, and I thought it'd be nice for everyone to hear from you. And um, as you generously suggested, to give some of the other guys a bit of a break, although um, we've been a bit slow on podcast, but uh, we're back on schedule. Nathan, I thought we'd talk about a couple of stocks um, today. Got a nice little list here. Before we get into stock-specific stuff, is there something you want to, to mention about the environment we're in? Is the, the, the war still going on? Inflation still raging? Interest rates are like a, a wall the economy is banging into every day. How are you thinking about it? Yeah, so there's just so much going on. Um, but the one thing that I think is pretty core to my thinking at the moment is, is this is exactly how these bear markets typically play out. So when I say that, I mean like, you know, we had the GSC, which I think was once in a generation or more event. And then we had COVID, which was just very unique and it was basically over before it started. But this is a much more classic type of bear market that you read about in the history books. And if you look through the performance of markets, you know, generally the history is US markets. And obviously there's differences between Australia and the US, or particularly how the market's made up. But this is your classic bear market so far. You had this basically 13-year massive bull market in everything. And by far and away, this was the biggest bull market we've ever had. So when you read about 1929 and the 70s and all you know, the nifty 50 collapse and all the rest of it, the bull market we just had was by far bigger than that. To, to give you a bit of an idea, context, the there's a famous ratio of called Warren Buffett's ratio about the value of GDP to the stock market. And he says, basically, fair value is around 100%, uh, you know, and under that's essentially cheap. But I think the highest it had ever been before, I, I think was 150% or maybe it was like 170% or 180. So that was the highest ever. So when you read about all those huge bull markets of history, that was as far as it ever got. This time around, it got to 250. So this, this bull market was just enormous. So you can't expect that it's all going to be fixed and over in 11 months, uh, you know, sort of 11 months through this bear market, really. The other thing to keep in mind is, you know, aside from the fact that this bear market, um, you know, it's not even a bear market in Australia, funnily enough, but the bear market in the US, like this is exactly how they play out, especially when the bear market goes on longer. So you've got these big bull market rallies and everyone thinks, oh, breathe a sigh of relief. Oh, it's over. Like finally something's going back up. And then after a while, it just goes back down again. And that, that's what exhausts most investors over a period of, of years. And my best guess, which is worth nothing, is that's the environment we're going to be in. And the reason I say that is because the transmission of higher interest rates is just so slow. And the reason that is, is because in America, they really don't have variable interest rates, uh, variable interest mortgages. So I think 95% of people are on fixed mortgages, which is still around 3%. And they're all employed still, and we're only just starting to see job losses at some of the big tech firms in the US as they start to worry about profit margins and less growth and you know protect their profits. And then in Australia, you've got this huge um, sort of pig coming down the python. Is that how you pronounce it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. uh, where you've got all these people who 
you know, like yourself, signed these fixed mortgages a couple of years ago, which was fantastic at these nice low rates. I think they got almost down to 2%. Some people might have even done it under 2%. 1.99, Nathan. <laughs> I, thought I, I did that for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember you telling that annoying James Carlyle had to pay yes. 2.3 or something a week later. Yeah, I think I only did it to annoy James, to be honest. <laughs> And so you've got, um, so that pig essentially coming through, um, you know, it's a three to four year period and we're, we're not even halfway through that. So basically, I think normally the average of fixed interest rate mortgages out there is 20% in Australia and it got to somewhere around, I think, 47%. And that's only really just starting to wind down now. And there's a, there's a big lot of them that expire um, by 30 June next year. And then the rest of them are sort of the, the following 12 to 18 months. So, so it's, when interest rates are falling, essentially you get that full capitalization of those falling interest rates almost straight away because people get excited, they borrow money, they buy the most expensive house they can afford, house prices go up, activity goes up, renovations, you know, stocks are going up, people are borrowing money on margin loans. So it happens really quickly, but it happens really slowly in the reverse. And so that's why I just think, you know, this idea of everyone's cheering for, you know, not everyone, but most of the media is cheering for a Fed pivot. Um, and that's really inauspicious to me because if you look at history where the Fed has pivoted generally, it's ushered in major stock market falls. So I don't think people actually understand what they're cheering for. You know, there seems to be this idea that if inflation stops going up, then the Fed can quickly reverse, drop interest rates by 200 basis points, and we can go back to the crazy boom times of last year. And I, I just don't buy into that at all. I think that's almost madness. And we shouldn't be cheering for that anyway. Like It's unsustainable. It creates problems. Um, and I think we're going to pay a big price for these zero interest rates over the next 10 years. Well, you're only now starting to see some of those really hot parts of the market starting to deflate. You know, All this is crypto stuff, the NFT stuff. The source of the true madness is now unraveling, mm. um, right? There's probably a lot more to go. I mean, there are a couple of stocks that look still very silly, and there's still a lot of crazy risk-taking behavior mm. going on. This is what gets me about um, if you actually look at a chart of the uh, ASX major indexes, the the sort of uptick in the last week or so has actually pushed it through the trend line. And so, if you were a chartist, you'd actually be really excited, thinking that you know maybe the next big bull market's coming, but Maybe it's just another big 20% rally in the market, which, you know, the market can do whatever it likes. You, you might be right in over the next two or three years, but, you, you know, market can do anything in the short term. You know, we're all just passengers. But the, if you looked at, you know, I have this list of tech stocks mainly that I've just been watching. You know, I don't really know a lot about them, but just waiting to see their share prices fall in case it's a situation at some point where a lot of stocks are down 75% and they're still not cheap. But at some point, they might be down 95%. And then they actually might be really good business to own for the next 10 years. But a lot of those stocks at the moment are not just expensive, but their fundamentals are deteriorating rapidly. And some of those stocks went up 30% or more in those last couple of days on last Thursday and Friday. So it wasn't a, it was indiscriminate buying and it wasn't based on fundamental factors. And when you get massive rallies like that, just based on non fundamental factors, I mean, bearing in mind, inflation was 7.7% still. Like, It was only good news in the context it wasn't 8.7. Um, and there's plenty of things you'd actually put back into those inflation numbers to make them actually more realistic. There's a lot of things that get taken out of those. So um, my best guess is, is it's a bear market rally, but 
the whole thing's, you know, as much as it's fun to talk about, and I think most people, you know, sort of want to understand our views and where things might be headed. The fact is to me, the only thing that matters is valuation. And, you know, I feel very fortunate that we only have to put portfolios of 20 odd stocks together because if you had to put a portfolio of 60 or 80 or 200 stocks together, I think that would just be very difficult based on valuations. Let's get to some of these stocks now. We've compiled a list of businesses we really wanted to try and research and get to know a bit better. Uh, on that list is a couple of names that you've introduced to the team. Um, let's do a quick couple of minutes on some of these names just to refresh ourselves about what the business does and what the opportunity might be. Some people might not be familiar with them as well, so this is a chance to do that. Um, MA Financial is a name that would be foreign to most people. They might be familiar with its previous name, Molus. This is a an odd little business um, in Australia, um, Nate, but when you look at, into, look, look at into it a little bit deeper, it looks oddly familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> so basically, this is a little version of Macquarie. So, Mini Macquarie. Yes, so it's, um, you know, it's got an investment banking side of it. Uh, so... Last year, it represented James Packer through the Crown Resorts debacle. Uh, they charged him $37 million, I believe. So um, that was a nice little learner for them. Um, but the real value, I think, in the business uh, in the future, the, the thing that scales much better or you know, scales a bit of jargon and grow it over time much better and um, you know, sort of make higher profits as you get bigger, the, is the asset management side of the business. And it's it's not just one type of asset management. They've got a whole bunch of nifty little types of businesses, um, all things from a mortgage broker platform. For example, there's some credit products and there's, there's a bit of everything. So if you're interested in the company, um, go and have a look at one of the presentations on the ASX website and they actually go through each of the divisions. And it looks actually quite complicated when you set out because it might be 75 pages in the slide deck go through it bit by bit, you get a better understanding for what makes up the business. But more recently, the the news, probably the two main pieces of news is, and this is a stock that got to, I think it actually got to $10 at the peak last, now it's down to $4, $4.50. And the two things are, one, you know, M&A activity is clearly rolled over and, and that was never going to be sustainable. Um, so that's not, you know, within the company's control, that's just a cyclical element. And if you go back through the history and look at, Macquarie's old annual reports, you see the same thing. So that's come off and the share price has come off with it. But the other interesting thing was the special investment visas, which basically allowed Chinese citizens to bring $5 million into the country and they, they get a visa. And there are limits on what they can do with that $5 million. You know, they have to invest it. It's just a matter of where they invest it. But if you're a rich Chinese person, you know, what better, what better money could you spend than if you're trying to get your money out of that country. And I imagine there's more people trying to get more money out right this minute than there has been almost ever, if not ever. Um, you know, for a whole bunch of reasons, you know, the housing market's crook and also the government's cramp been clamping down on lots of entrepreneurs for a while now, you know, plus the currency's falling. There's all these things going on. And the Labor government has said that they're looking to scrap that. So it hasn't made a decision yet and it'll come uh, next year, but my best guess is I actually don't think it's useful to anyone, particularly it's really just a, a racket to sell visas. And I think they'll close it down. The question is what happens to MA's business, existing business? So 
it's quite, it's quite an important part of the business. It's not one that I've ever included in the valuation of all, because for the obvious reasons, it just could be turned off tomorrow. But they've actually made it a fairly sizable business. And I actually think at one point, and, and I'm just guessing here because you don't know exactly, but might have actually accounted for a quarter of profits. So that, that explains partly at least why the share price has fallen so far. But they might actually be able to keep existing clients, like maybe it's grandfathers and only affects, you know, they just turn it off, but in the existing um, you know, I say Chinese citizens, but I think it's like 87 or 95% of people who have used it have been Chinese citizens, but it is open to anyone. But if that's um, if they're allowed to keep the money that they've raised, then you know, great. There's really um, it's locked in. They can keep managing the money, and it's all good. But it does shut down what has been a growth aspect of their business at the same time, while M and A's falling. Um, they've actually done really well raising money from elsewhere in the last little while, which has actually somewhat surprised me. It's really healthy because um, I reduced our buy price from, I think it was $4 to $3 and maybe even had it as high as $5 originally. But I just think this is a period where you just want to go very slowly. And I think there's, you know, as I've learned over time, as a value investor, you know, you, you're sort of taught to go in there and buy the pain. And sometimes you just need to let things happen and just wait. You don't have to rush in and be the first guy to go and show that, hey, look, I'm the great value investor. I can buy into the pain. I can handle it. Uh, I think sometimes you just want to let things happen. And I think that's the period we're in. So I don't really know where the earnings are going to land, but the flows look really good. It's a business I definitely want to own more of over the long term, but it's just one I'm just, I think we might get some better prices and I don't mean that to say it's a timing thing, but I just don't really know where the profits are going to land at the moment. So I'm, I'm happy to um, be patient. Yeah, no, I hear you on that, um, the point about value investors, Nate. There's a tendency to self-flagellate and then wear those bruises and scars as as a, as a trophy. You know, I, I, I used to do it myself and I've seen it amongst friends and colleagues that, um, that, you, that we're, we're trained to enter the fray at the worst possible time and, celebrate the fact that we're able to do so. And I think often that's just a mistake. So uh, yeah, as, as I've gotten more experience, that's something I've, I've learned as well. I completely agree with you. I think particularly for, because math is so cyclical, you know, like yeah. every revenue stream is tied to markets. And, you know, I don't want to be on here saying that we're going to have another GFC or anything like that. We may just have a classic recession and sharp and who knows, maybe even we miss out on one. But mm. I think in this environment, there really is much higher chance of a major accident. Uh, when I say that, maybe this time around it's a sovereign debt crisis, which doesn't have much impact on the states or Western countries. But it's just amazing how, like, I've wanted higher interest rates because I just don't like zero interest rates as a policy, full stop. I think it creates all sorts of bad behavior and incentives and lots of wasted money and other things. But I've been amazed how fast and how far um, Jerome Powell has put up interest rates, and it looks like a brick wall on the chart. Yeah. And we haven't seen the impact yet. So um, again, I just I can't emphasize enough. Just this is a period where you just walk slowly. We don't need to dive into anything. And I think the people who do the best over the next five years and even over the next 12 months are just the ones that just go slowly and just wait for the right price rather than forcing themselves, feeling they have to do something just because some share prices have fallen. Let's move to a different area of the market. Um Karoon Energy is a stock, unusual recommendation for us because I think it's, it might be the first time we've had a turnaround story baked, you know, disguised as an energy stock. 
Um, the we've recommended this for I think it's been just over a year, right? And it's probably doubled by by now. They've um, some of that is due to higher oil prices, and, and there's a bit of cyclicality in there. But but the the base case here, I mean the the reason I was attracted to it, the reason I bought it myself was really the the turnaround. Karun is famous in oil and gas circles as a basket case. It's been a basket case for almost so 15 years or so. Um, they made a huge discovery um, 10, 12 years ago off the coast of WA, sold it to Origin at crazy high prices, then sat on a huge pile of cash and did nothing with it for a decade, but paid themselves a lot of money. Um, the board and management I was never keen on. Um, the you know the the CEO's son was a CFO, seemed awfully young and inexperienced to hold that position. Um, there were questionable governance decisions made all the way throughout that history, and, and for a long part, long part of its history it was actually trading below cash backing. And I had plenty of people pointing that out to me, but I was just not interested in buying a company that didn't trust management, despite how how cheap it looked. Now that all changed when um, the CEO resigned, the CFO left. Um, there was a new board, new management, and they bought um, an interesting-looking asset um, off the coast of Brazil. And sure enough, the the board is actually um, and management are well credentialed, well experienced. Um, includes the, the founder of AWE, which is a company I think we know pretty well at, at II and, and I've owned in the past. Um, and they've also filled the key positions with with technical people who have had experience in Brazil. And who have worked in those um, those offshore conditions as well. So, all that change has resulted in a, in a technical turnaround. So, oil production has actually they've produced oil for the first time. First of all, and they're actually making making cash flow. Um, there's free cash flow available. They've got some interesting growth options now, and um, and the market has started to price this thing not only as uh, a company that's no longer a basket case, but it started to to pay attention to the growing production profile of, of the business. And I think there's still, I mean, I know we've made, we've, we've doubled our money already. Um, you know, there's, there's potential here, I think, um, to do a lot more than that if the business can realize um, some of these growth ambitions. And they're not outlandish or crazy. They're actually quite simple. And, and modest, um, and it's generating that the cash now to fund those ambitions. So, Nath, I think this is still a company that looks quite interesting. Um, maybe not a buy today, but certainly one to to keep holding, and we're going to keep covering and keep an eye on it. I think the big question members keep asking is: Should they sell their Woodside shares now and buy Karoon? Yeah, that's that's quite interesting, actually. Um, I'd say there's certainly more upside in. Karun. Karun is um, uh, is the only pure oil exposed business we have on the ASX. I think I can't think of another one. Um, certainly not another sizable one, anyway. And so, if you if you believe in in the oil price, and I think it's fair to point out, of the last ten years, we've had almost no investment in oil. Um, you know, the the capex in oil projects has been decimated, and that's all over the world, onshore, offshore. Uh, it's been a real um, dearth of investment, and unlike other industries, oil is constantly declining. So while you've had no capex, you've had declining uh, fields. So the, the the requirement for more investment and the supply crunch um, that just gets worse every year. That there's no no capex, and uh, that's changing a little bit now. You see, drip numbers start to rise. Capex numbers have started to rise a little bit. But I still think it's a long way before we 
gets any sort of equilibrium in that oil market. It's it's one that you probably want some sort of exposure to. It's somewhat a little bit surprising that there aren't actually all that many great oil stocks in Australia where you mm. actually get the leverage that you want when prices go up, but also a safe enough to own and aren't just completely speculative bets where it either goes up 10 times or you lose all your money. Yeah, I think that just reflects the resources we have here. We're a very gas-heavy um, country over here. And the big majors, the you know, Woodside and Santos, uh, they were really good at converting their gas into LNG and, and linking gas prices to international gas prices. So they do have some oil exposure that way through the LNG price, but it is limited. And they write these really long multi-decade contracts, which means they don't get the full extent of the oil price, uh, but it also protects them on the downside. Um, I would say for Karun, one of the big risks um, is actually Brazil itself. Now, Brazil has had um, elections over the last couple of weeks, and um, they've had a more, I would say, stable uh, government than they have had in the past. They've had a real Trumpy um, president, um, and he's actually threatening to not recognize the election result. And it's a bit unclear how that situation is going to play out. So there's a lot of um, political risks still in, in within Brazil. Um, and the other thing I'd point out is that there's now lots of operating cash flow coming through, and you really need management to allocate that cash really sensibly. The last thing they need is to, to get excited and start um, chasing production. They've got a really concise and I think smart plan. Um, so one of the things I'm looking looking towards is, is seeing if they can stick to that plan. If I see any um, out any overreach um, and excess ambition, I think that's probably a catalyst itself. You just don't need to take those risks. They've got a really sensible idea on the table already. We just need them to follow it. Yeah, I think that country risk you mentioned is really important because, you know, let's say you were lucky enough to buy Woodside at a nice cheap price and maybe it's become 7 or 8% of your portfolio and that might be perfectly sensible for people, um, you know, pays a dividend and operates mm-hmm. in mostly pretty safe jurisdictions. Yeah. You know, you don't want to take an 8% position and then put 8% in Karoon. Yeah. Yeah. You know, maybe you pay, put 1% or 2% in and see how you do, or, you know, maybe you don't have to win again the same way you won before and pick something else that's safer. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. They have completely different risk profiles. Woodside is actually in a, in a pretty good spot as well because the balance sheet has all been repaired. Again, the, the risk really is capital allocation. They've got, um, they're generally, um, developing this Scarborough project, which looks to me, I think it's going to be really well sought after. And I think one of the catalysts for, for Woodside is they're going to be selling some project equity in that. And there's um, there are users of LNG just scrambling to get onto the um, equity base to, to get access to these projects. There's not been many of them over the last few years, and there's a bit of a gap between any new ones um, coming, especially in, in this Asian region. Transport of LNG tankers is a huge cost. And so you, we want to be in some sort of um, proximity to the end market. Um, so Woodside, I, I think it's going to be interesting over the next um, couple of months if they sell down this Scarborough equity. It could show that the project's probably a bit more valuable than what most people think. Um, and uh, and it, it probably shows up that there's a there's an enormous shortage of traditional energy, something I think we've been talking about for some time. Certainly one of those more uh, technical aspects of, of nerds that like to talk about investing is the CapEx, the capital expenditure. But mm. it's really important with these oil and gas companies because it's all well and good to look at, say, earnings per share and say, you know, Woodside, you know, even in a fairly 
um, average scenario might be earning $2 in EPS in a couple of years. Yeah. You know, it's at $40 at 20 times earnings. Well, that doesn't sound too bad given CSL and Resume or whatever is trading at 35 times mm -hmm. or more. But it's a very different um, financial situation because Woodside needs to invest very heavily to earn that money. Almost, almost a little bit in the same way that CSL has to invest heavily in R&D to create the products of the future. But it's, it's not... Uh, you know, it's not like the coal stocks, for example, which have worked so wonderfully well, not just because the price has gone up, but because there hasn't been much cap or any capex so far. And all that cash has either come back through share buybacks or big fully frank dividends. So where that cash goes is really important to the sort of value you put on a business. And you're always going to pay less for a business that's got a lot of investing to do to earn those profits. Now, speaking of businesses handling cash, um, let's have a chat about Pinnacle because this is also a stock that went to crazy high prices and now has pulled back a long way. And it's probably worth asking the question whether this is now looking interesting again. Yeah, so this stock, uh, I think I was buying originally around $3 before the COVID bear market, um, may have paid four or five bucks at the most, and then it fell to $2.50 and bought some more and then it went to almost I think it went to like $19.61 I think it went to and I had $20 as the sell price and uh, I think in the old days if we had the take part profits recommendation that's that's what I would have put on it so we were taking profits along the way and then it careened back down to $6 I think it got down to or maybe $6.60 or something and and since then it's just been you know anywhere between six and ten dollars depending on where the market's at. If the market has a good day, Pinnacle goes up. If the market has a bad day, it goes down. The question is, what is Pinnacle for me? Is Pinnacle just a, a fund manager that's going to struggle as it gets bigger? And now a lot of the in-house, I think it's got 18 strategies at least at the moment, maybe there's 20 now with some acquisitions. You know, a lot of these strategies sort of had their day. They can't really manage any more money and still outperform. Um, I won't pick on some of the funds in there, but there's definitely a couple of Aussie funds there that look maxed out. So you're not going to get that big growth. And then the worst thing that could happen is we actually have a proper bear market in Australia and then you get outflows and, and no performance fees and that would really knock the earnings around. But there's a bigger picture that I have in mind and I don't know what the chances are of this happening and the only way to find out is, is time. But what you've seen in the bigger picture across the financial system in Australia is that people are moving their money away from the big in-house fund managers like Colonial, which was part of CBA, and all these in-house fund managers that the financial planners within those huge financial institutions were telling them that these are the ones you need to buy. And if you're looking for a, there aren't many places to go now where there's actually a single house offering a variety of of investment strategies that suit big institutional investors looking to place a lot of money um, you know, and build diversified portfolios. But Pinnacle does have that. Pinnacle has, yeah, as I said, these 20 odd different strategies. So you know, whatever the market conditions are, if you're looking for value, if you're looking for growth, if you're looking for something interest rate or you know, whatever, they're all under the one, one umbrella. And they've also got a, uh, I believe it's quite an aggressive sales team I've heard. Um, but they do have salespeople in all the major cities in Australia. And that's a really powerful advantage, I think, that if there's an issue that you can have someone sitting at your desk within an hour, as opposed to you know maybe a fund manager who goes and visits clients around Australia once a year or something like that. 
Mm. It just gives you an opportunity to really comfort investors and work out what they really need and looking for. And Pinnacle over time is going to have more fund managers. Like its most recent acquisition was into more type strategies. And you know, we could argue about whether they actually any, add any value, but the market, you know, lots of investors seem to want them at the moment. I'm, I'm sure part of it's because they don't have to write down their asset values to market all the time. Um, so it makes them feel safer than what they actually are. But um, but whatever, the the pension funds around the world seem to be allocating more money to private equity and these other absolute return strategies. So it's made an acquisition there. So, so basically my question is, is Pinnacle just a typical fund manager that's just going to run out of room to grow at some point and eventually you just see the earnings decline steadily and you end up in a platinum situation where, you know, still manages plenty of money, but it's just got no growth and um, you just have to sort of collect your dividend if, if that's what you want to do. Or can Pinnacle become the replacement colonials, like essentially be the colonials of the future where they've actually got in right, correct incentives of managers and Pinnacle itself being invested in the funds. And so far, their success has really been based on fantastic performance. And so can they keep that up? So that, that's the bigger, longer-term question. Um, but in the short term, I've, I've been somewhat conservative, I think, um, thinking that at some point markets are, you know, I don't know what the period ahead is, but, you know, I'm sure it's not good for performance fees regardless for Pinnacle. So I wanted to make sure we pay a very cheap price to buy that one. Yeah, I think there's this, there's an idea that, well, I think fund managers in particular would like to believe that the success of a fund comes down to its performance. And it's it's a unique industry because you can measure performance so easily and compare it across products. But we both know, and anyone who's worked in this industry knows that managing money is more than just your performance. And marketing and distribution are huge um, pieces of that puzzle. And, and Pinnacle does both of those things really, really well. Um, so uh, you can see the problem they're solving for funders, and you can see the problem they're solving for advisors. Yeah, particularly in the industry where everyone is looking to basically save their own ass. Like no one wants to sign off. You know, if you're Zenith or Lonsec, um, you know, the last thing you want to have is a fund manager on your roll call that goes out of business, really bad performance or is subscale. Um, you know, I always found it interesting in my previous job that we had a fixed um, fee, which was quite high by fixed fee standards, but we didn't, didn't have a performance fee. And yet we get criticised all the time, um, despite the fact that Magellan and Platinum and all these other ones had these fees that were much, much higher when you put the performance fee in. You know, they call it the management expense ratio when you've got a performance and a base fee. So they were happy for to be high, um, but not happy for the fixed fee to be high, even if overall it was a lower MER. So these are all the crazy things that actually go on in the background in the funds management industry. And, and Pinnacle offer a, solve a lot of those problems, like you said, they're a safe set of hands, they've got good performance on the funds, they're all well set up, they've got salespeople, which the you know, Zenith and Lonsec, the rating houses, they really want, they really want you to be able to grow your business. Because as I said, they don't want to see anyone losing fun and then ended up having to tell their investors that yet yeah, we signed off on this fund, but now it's no longer around. So there's a lot of um, backside protection in our industry and, and Pinnacle do a very good job of that. While I think having a much better incentive structure, both for Pinnacle itself, but also just in the business running the funds. Let's head back to software and take a look at RPM Global, which has been a long running recommendation actually, and performed reasonably well, but 
one of the things that stood out in their recent result was, um, you know, they've got been going through the, a really heavy investment phase. You know, as a reminder to everyone, um, RPM Global makes uh, software for, for miners. There's also a little consulting business in there as well, which is uh, making um, small amounts of money. But the bulk of the value in the company is in the software business. And they've, they've been investing a lot of money over the last, what, four or five years, uh, buying and building their own software um, to go into every aspect of the mine. And, and that's from um, monitoring real-time performance um, in the drill bits to, um, to designing the, um, the, the mining sequencing to then capturing all that data back into the back end and generating financial reports. So their, their software covers everything from um, mine activity all the way back to the financial um, reports in, in the back end. And um, I, I've been told that it's, it's actually one of the only pieces of software that can do all of that uh, from the single provider. And um, it's actually, they, they, what they've done really well is, is create products that suit very specific types of mining. So they actually have a product for, um, for uh, you know, underground gold mine or, uh, or steeply, steeply stoping, uh, scoping, um, sloping um, uh, coal mines. Um, you know, they, they take um, products and make them very bespoke to the, to the mining conditions of their customers. And that makes the software heavily, heavily integrated into the operations. And generally, you would see that the software gets used for the life of the mine. I know they sign these two and three and sometimes five year deals, but the expectation is that unless something goes terribly wrong, that those deals just get um, rolled over and rolled over into the entire life of mine. Because if you're a miner, the biggest pain in the butt is having to replace um, a sequencing or financial or monitoring piece of software um, that you've been using um, since the beginning of the mine. They generally use the same software um, over the whole course of the mine life. And then that's the opportunity here. Um, every new sale that they make, every new customer that they acquire is actually incredibly valuable. We don't really see that value upfront. We'll start seeing it over time. I think we're at a point with RPM now where you'll see um, cash flows start to overtake development costs and management itself indicated that you'll start seeing a lot more free cash flow coming out of that business. I think the market's going to start to recognize that there's something actually really interesting going on here. Um, and I think it's been hidden for a long time. It's been one of our, our favorites for a while, mate. Yeah, my sense is the founder is a seller at the right price, but it's a price mm. that's much higher than where we are much today. Higher. And it's funny how acquisitions work. And I think this is why actually 70% of them statistically fail, fail to add value, is that generally they're bought in reasonably good times. Like no one wants to buy a problem child, even though that's probably the best time to, to make an acquisition. And I actually just wonder once you actually start to see the profitability of from these, you know, many years of investment now and COVID slowing the business down as well. Once you see those profits start to come through, whether it might make it a bit more enticing to some bigger software player and Brad gets his price. Yeah. I also think if you're if you're an acquirer of a business like this, you don't want to be taking on all their development costs onto your own books, which is what would happen if you had bought this a year or two ago. You'd be they what's that the fancy word they call it? Uh, IRR. <laughs> no, they, they, they're all the banker types. It's 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 uh, it's um, non it's dilutive, right? Or it's not accredited. It's not it's not uh, earnings accredited. Yeah, earnings accredited. <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. That's what they're all looking for. So um, that's going to start being earnings accredited from next year. So 
I think that's going to be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I've really liked it. I've just felt comfortable that the business was undervalued. It was in good hands and there's a clear strategy for it. a lot of investment have been done. And I thought it was quite different, you know, having that in the, as it's been one of our largest positions in the portfolios for a while, but I felt much safer buying that than I did say zero where the expectations in that stock were just enormous. I mean, I think at some one point in my presentations, uh, RPM, uh, sorry, RUL, I <laughs> mix it up with RPM. <laughs> um, the, you know, the multiple to revenue enterprise value to sales was something like three or four and for something for zero, I think it even got to 20 or 25 or something crazy. crazy. At some point it was just chalk and cheese. And, and it's interesting when you go through a bull market and the questions that don't get asked or no one cares about the answer. And then all of a sudden things, the, the environment changes and now all of a sudden those questions matter. And I think for zero shareholders, no one really cared about whether it was going to be successful in the US. They just bought the story and, and clearly the market was prepared to pay up for that story. And now actually, you know what, things are getting a bit tougher. Software, it turns out, is a little bit more cyclical than what we probably thought. And you know, the profits aren't there, the cash flow, you know, I know you can argue about the profitability of zero, but you know, now it's not so it's not so sure a thing that it's going to do well in the US. And now people are starting to worry about those same questions rather than just sort of passing them off. And that's why you've got a share price now. It was below $70 down from I think it's like 160 or something. Yeah, it was crazy, wasn't it? Look, one of the one of the stocks we probably get asked about most, which is strange because it's also one of the smallest stocks we cover is FTV. And I, I suspect that's because, Nate, you just can't stop yourself from talking about it <laughs> on every occasion. So we're here now. Go on, give us an update on Frontier Digital. Uh, this, this is one that I just never wanted to cover in the subscription business, but I just had no choice um, because we have to cover everything in a subscription business that goes in the in the portfolios. And, you know, the upside's clear to, to anyone that looks at it. The question is, is it going to come? And I've owned this one myself for six years now since it listed. And if I look at the business today to what it was when it listed, it's just chalk and cheese. It's so much better a business, but it just shows you it's things take time. And, and there's no guarantees it's going to work out. But what I would say about Frontier is the next 18 months feels like to me it's going to be the making or breaking of the, of the business and our investment case. And I say that because you know, most of the attention has been on Zameen, which is the Pakistan version of REA Group. And Frontier owns 30% of that, uh, which you know, most people have put a billion-dollar value uh, on Zameen. Uh, it's a clear market leader. It's doing great. Profit margins are up. Yeah, it's doing all the things we want it to do. Um, maybe it's happened a bit slower than what we'd like, but as I said, that's business. And you know, on face value, that would put the value at $300 million for Frontier. And Frontier's current market value is about $260 million um, with $20 or $30 million on, of cash sitting on the balance sheet. But what I'd say about that cash is it's probably offset by um, earnouts for acquisitions it's made. So that money will get invested one way or the other. Um, so I wouldn't necessarily think of that as sort of cash in the value, if you like. It's, you know, it depends on what sort of investment gets made with that. So what's happened recently is uh, the Pakistan currency hasn't collapsed or anything, but Frontier is basically being priced as though it has. So typ typically, and again, you can argue about this as well, but if, the, if you've got a market-leading property classifieds business, you know, particularly with the growth that, is a mean and the rest of them potentially have and you recognize that REA groups made all its money out of advertising which is incredible but 
Frontier is really attacking transactions as well, which is a much, much, much bigger market than advertising. So there's actually a chance that the, the insane profit margins that companies like REA Group have could be exceeded eventually um, with Frontier's companies. Now, do you pay more for that or do you deduct, pay a lower multiple if you like, because it's in um, emerging countries where there's a, always a risk of currency collapse? So you've got to weigh up those things. But, you know, at the moment, basically you've got, um, you know, the company just announced a few weeks ago that it's taking the founders of Infocasis, which is one of the Latin American businesses, and put him in charge of the whole Latin American business, uh, which currently earns around US $30 million in revenue. The goal is to get that up to $100 million in revenue and potentially list that division on the NASDAQ where it would get a much better valuation than say Australia, because Americans like investing in Latin America in the same way that Australia tends to like investing in Asia. So, you know, that's why sometimes you see funny things get listed in Australia, particularly property things, um, because we pay big prices for things that we think we understand, which is property. So at the moment, you've got, you know, let's just, let's say everything works out, right? So let's say the Pakistan rupee doesn't collapse and Pakistan has just got money from Saudi Arabia and China. And you can argue about whether that's a good thing or not, but the, anyway, it's sort of helped their finances for at least the next 12 months and, and they seem to be there to help them out, um, which I don't know if it's just because Pakistan is a nuclear country or not, but whatever, um, they've got the money, and, but they're really hurting at the moment because of inflation and they're big importers of food and energy and they don't have those as big natural sources like Australia, for example. So. You know, and then they've got external borrowings and US dollars just forcing up the cost of all those borrowings. So Pakistan itself is in a really bad place from its financial point of view, um, but it's getting money from the IMF and, and others to help. So let's assume that the Pakistan rupee holds its value or at least doesn't collapse. Then at the moment, the 30% shareholding in Zameen, um, you know, it looks like that's worth more than Frontier alone at the moment. Now, let's say... And the new chief of the Latin American business is successful and he gets that revenue up to US $100 million. In Australian dollars at the moment, that's about $150 million. Let's say it gets a 10 times revenue multiple. Again, you can argue about whether that's right or wrong, but let's just say that happened. Well, the, you've got about $1.8 billion in value now. And, and the share price is, as I said, about $260 million or the market cap is $260 million with $30 million of cash. You know, and then you've got some other little bits and pieces as well. So the upside potential is clearly there, but the reality is these high US interest rates are smashing emerging market economies. And that's really the reason why most people have stayed away from Frontier and haven't backed Sean, even though he's got a fantastic background at REA Group and I Properties because they just were worried about the currency collapses in these countries. And, and they may turn out to be right. And maybe, um, maybe the Latin American business doesn't, you know, grow like it's supposed to and maybe the Pakistan rupee collapses and all of a sudden, you know, we're right to be, it's right to be valued at, you know, one times revenue, you know, post-currency uh, from an Australian investor and, and we don't make any money, but I just think the upside's still there, but it's going to be a, it's going to be a tough 18 months, no doubt. It, you know, even though the underlying businesses are, are doing well and I, and I should do a lot better um, for a whole bunch of reasons that we won't go into today, but um, you know, even if they do well, the currency can still kill us. Now, if I went to uh, Aussie Broadband's Investor Day, it was last week, um, early last weekend, um, 
if you haven't seen a review up there by the time you're watching this, um, it will be up pretty shortly. I'm working on it right now, but um, it was fantastic. It was the first investor day this business has ever had. They had the whole team, um, not just um, the founders, which are the people you generally hear from. The, the MD there is um, Phil Britt, um, who's from this business for probably 20 years or a version of this business for, for, for decades. Um, but uh, they had everyone else up who I haven't really heard from before. And you got to see a really um, experienced, mission-driven and competent set of um, managers in each of those divisions. Um, I was really impressed with with uh, with the, with what I came back with. Um, the problem Aussie, I guess, is facing at the moment. The one of the reasons why the share price has fallen uh, so much is there's a concern that all Aussie will ever be is a reseller of NBN, and it's it's bumping up against its limit to how much it can sell. You know, NBN for a hundred hundred twenty dollars a month. Uh, so they've always sort of say, said that we can get to about ten percent market share. They're now approaching 7% market share, which means the growth, um, as many people see it, is now kind of tapping out. And that's why the multiple has has fallen so much, even though the financial results have been really good. Um, and, but the, the company just went through some of their plans for what they're going to do after they they think they tap out of that, that 10%. And a lot of it has to do with growing in um, in fiber, in enterprise, in government, and in services. And it's a formula that we've spoken about before. It's a formula that looks really familiar because it's exactly the path that Macquarie Telecom used to grow as well. Now, 10 years ago, Macquarie Telecom was a largely a reseller of other people's services. It, it, it sold traditional teleco services to corporates, and it would do it at um, not so much cheaper prices than Telstra, but it would just do better service, um, better products and more tailored solutions than Telstra. And um, like Aussie, Macquarie got the ire of Telstra. Telstra used to have pages allocated to have this, this annoying little competitor that was taking market share. And once that business was established and built up, that actually took the profits from that business and they invested it into um, the cloud and into data centers. And we all know that Macquarie has been a, a fantastic um, business. It's, it's been a fantastic success story. It's run by the same brothers. It's got a long, um, a long line of growth ahead of it in those new areas. Um, and, you know, it's one of the reasons why it's, it's, it was on the buy list. I own it myself. I think it's a great business. That same path is being followed by Aussie. They're, they're talking about, um, you know, they've already acquired some of the bits and pieces they need to fulfill that, that function. They've, they've bought um, a, a voice network um, which taps into every other network in Australia. They can now sell mobile, um, sell phone numbers and get revenue every time someone calls one of their numbers. Um, they're building a fiber business, but their their ambitions for fiber were much larger than I had thought. So you know they're doing this project where they're creating their own backhaul, and what they're doing now is that they're, they're just extending that backhaul fiber um, on a case by case basis to new dwellings, new buildings, new data centers. And over time, I think you'll see quite a, a much larger and more profitable um, wholesale fiber business being built. And um, for comparison, TPG has probably the best wholesale fiber business in Australia. They generate 65% margins. Um, it's the best part of TPG, which has now been completely diluted by uh, other businesses that aren't as good. Um, Aussie Broadband looks to be building a, a fiber business that 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 mirrors what CPG has already done. 
and then they're talking about services and um, security. And they bought the building blocks of that already, and they're now um, they're now acquiring customers um, at, at quite a, a quick clip. I mean, it's not showing up in the results because it's very small compared to the revenues they're getting from reselling broadband. But the customer acquisition has been really, really quick. Um, one of the highlights for me, and, and you know, we go to a lot of these events. We see a lot of investor days. We see a lot of presentations. So good ones really stand out. And one thing I don't see very often is, is when a customer, when a company presents and then customers of that company become advocates and present at the investor day on behalf of that company. So Aussie, Aussie said, oh, look, this is the sort of thing we're going with. We've got a few customers up here. We, we've asked them to present, so they'll speak for five minutes. And up came, um, you know, a, a very senior person from Westpac and a very senior person from NextDC. These are two big listed businesses that have nothing to gain by coming to Investor Day and spruiking little Aussie broadband. But I was quite shocked at the glowing terms that they were talking about this business and the reputation and the skill acquisition that Aussie has already developed. Uh, for me, it, show, it, it shows that there's real um, ambition in this business, real skill, and uh, the people running it know exactly what they're doing. They know exactly where they want to go and they're building the bits and pieces they need to get there. Um, it's very, very different to a invest, uh, investor day from Telstra, for example, or from most investor days I've been to. It really stood out. I was really impressed. Um, I think the numbers are still going to be really poor this year. There's been a lot of competition in that reseller space. The big problem is, the, uh, is that they have to... Uh, pay a volume charge on the NBN that they purchase, uh, and and that kind of eats away a lot of their margin. Um, there's a review of that volume charge at the moment, and at the moment it looks like it's going to get scrapped. And this is an incredibly complicated piece of legislation and a really complicated regulatory system. But um, it looks as though that the volume charge will be get scrapped, and companies like Aussie who um, have really high end um, plans whose customers consume a lot of volume, those will probably probably be the ones that benefit. I'm not sure that's very clear to the market because it is so complex and there's a little bit of uncertainty. But there's, uh, you know, there's, there, there is some chance that the margins actually improve in this company. And then, of course, I just think the future just looks so bright for Aussie. I was just blown away by the uh, the, the plans that they have for the business, and I'm really happy to be a shareholder in and. Hoping we get a chance to um, uh, to top up at the funds, Nate, at some stage. <laughs> um, you know, I've brought a little bit of ball back. The um, I always find it funny. We sit here as value investors, and we're taught all about looking for companies that are prepared to sacrifice profit today for more profit yeah. in the future, and making those really long term investments. And then when you actually see it. And yeah. the share price collapses, <laughs> and then yeah, because you know, the brokers yeah. hate it. Everyone just wants to see growing yeah. profits, right? No one cares about the rest, and you know, for all their talk. But it's that investment today where the future, you know, it can, it can be hard to handicap what return they're going to get on the investment. And I, I find That's that right. personally, particularly with the telco companies, like it just just the assets are complicated. It's not mm. something you can. It's not like you go to Woolies and you can see the business and touch and feel everything. It's much more complicated. Which is why I rely on your expertise expertise in that sector a lot but you know now we're actually seeing it and you know everybody wants to run from the stock and you can even see it in the 
some of the Q&A on our website. It's just been some really not quite nasty stuff. And it's not really built on analysis. It's just all looking at the share price. You know, the share price is half what it was. Therefore, we don't know what we're doing and this is going to be the next Magellan or whatever. It's funny how people just sort of grab stories and aren't actually doing the work. And it, but doing the work doesn't guarantee it's going to work out. But, but I find personally, when I sit here looking at the portfolios every day and, you know, I have to do a webinar, you know, in the last, I think by the end of tomorrow, in the last six weeks, I've done something like seven or eight web podcasts. Like, I don't want to listen to myself that much. <laughs> no, I don't think anybody does. Um, but like when you sort of focus, because you focus very much on the markets as well when you're doing these types of things rather than just stocks. And then it starts to get stressful because you don't know what's going to happen, what's going to happen with inflation or interest rates. And then what happens is I go, oh, look, I'm just going to go and look at the presentation from the company. And and slowly as, you know, as the pages go through and I'm focused on what's actually going on in the company, all of a sudden that stress just all disappears. You know, actually just focusing on the fundamentals, you know, are these smart people? Are they doing the right thing? And just all the share price noise and stress just disappears and, that's what I really recommend to people because it's even though we're writing articles for people and we're providing the analysis, there's you know you need to do a little bit more work yourself. You, you, you know, at the very least, if you're going to buy a stock, you should at least go and have a look at the latest ASX announcement or presentation and just get a feel for what's going on in the business, even if it's you know hard to understand. And maybe the fact that it's hard to understand says to you that this isn't the stock for me um, because it's easy to pass on blame that it doesn't work out when you don't really understand it in the first place and. And if I find telecommunications difficult, then surely our members do as well. It's it's a it's a tough business. It's also quite a commoditized business, which is why you make much more money in the minnows in this industry than buying Telstra over time. But people would say they're a lot more familiar with Telstra because they've owned it for a long time and they're pretty, you know, they use its products. Whereas, you know, what Aussie Broadband is doing is sort of similar but but different and at much different level, you know, smaller customers, but big customers and new areas and, you know, there's a lot going on. It's a really, I think it's quite a complicated business and it requires exp expertise, but to be looking at the share price and saying this is the next $1 stock, I, like you've got to put in a little bit of work. Yeah. And this is what, I just think this is what opportunity looks like. You know, it, it's when you have uncertainty or complexity or something unknown, you know, you don't, you don't get opportunities where everything looks rosy and there's no problems. <laughs> the, 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 great, the great opportunities are, are the ones that look a little bit messy or there's something uncertain about it. And there is definitely, there is definitely uncertain. I mean, I don't want to give the impression that this is a, a slam dunk investment. These guys are going from doing something that, that they're good at and, um, and been working on for a long time to now going into new areas. So there's certainly risk with that. But, um, you know, all our experience in looking at businesses, um, one of the things I think that's it's clear is that there, there, there are managements and individuals who are good at this stuff and others who just do it as a job or as a box-ticking exercise, you know, and you, you get to recognise the ones that are really good, the ones that are worth following, the ones that are worth taking risks on and, and the ones that aren't. Um, you know, small things, um, I think, say so much. So, so this was the first investor day that Aussie's ever run. I love that every single person from their company came in in uniform, you know, in, in an Aussie branded um, uh, uniform. And, and this just seemed like a very coherent, everyone's been there for years as well, I might add. 
Um, you know, the directors have been buying stock as it's been falling, not just a little bit, but sort of millions of dollars worth. Um, you know, all the little things that we that that you look for as an experienced investor, the, the small things that look silly and and maybe um, irrelevant to to a lot of other investors. Uh, that's that's the sort of stuff that that I look for that, that to give to supplement the the hard analytical work and and often the the results you get from those little things are, are worth more than they are from looking at the hard numbers which everyone has access to and which there's there's less uncertainty about. I think generally too at the moment if if I was just sitting here with no job just doing my own the small cap area is really interesting at the moment. Mm. And I think that's for a couple of different reasons. One, which is just the type of environment we're in where people don't want to own these smaller, riskier things as, you know, some some fund managers are going out of business. The sell-side research on small stocks is a fraction of what it used to be. The investment banks don't want to pay expensive analysts to cover these areas that don't make them any money anymore. And, you know, and the share prices are way down. You know, even if you just look across the small cap sector indexes, you know, the valuations are actually below where they've been historically, which you, know, you can't say of the major indexes where people are hiding out in things like 30 times earnings for Woolworths and, you know, like there's, there's hardly any growth there at all. It doesn't have an overseas business. There's only so many more Woolworths that can be open, but you know, people are fearful when they're looking for traditional familiar homes and, and it creates what I think is a perceived safety. It's, yes, the business might be safe from a, you know, the revenues aren't going to collapse or anything like that. Um, you know, that's why people are sort of gravitating to a West Farmers or Woolies or CSL or ResMed and all these sort of familiar names that are growing quickly and there's no issues with their earnings. But, you know, the higher the price you pay, the, you start to take on a different type of risk. And, you know, it's a very different investor. You know, most of our members are retirees and they just don't want any stress in their portfolios, which is great. But if you're, you know, younger and you're prepared to take a bit more risk and maybe do a bit more work, and, you know, there's a limit to how many small cap stocks we can cover and there's a very even stronger limit to what we can get into the funds because of the liquidity trading limits as a ASX listed ETFs. But this is a, an area where I personally be spending a lot of time on at the moment because there are these opportunities, I think, like and MA Financial, RPM Global. Like that's the reason we've looked at, it, at them today as a group because they are cheaper than what they have been and they're actually, they're run by their founders, they're, doing sensible things. They've got no balance sheet issues. Um, you know, it's just, it just ticks a lot of boxes for where you want to spend your time. Yeah. Now, speaking of your time, I, I think we've probably run out of hours. Um, I, I can't let you go without commenting on your the impeccably clean surrounds. <laughs> My goodness. I should have known that. Um, your desk is always uh, the cleanest of anyone else in the office. Should have known that the lounge would be the same. But I guess doing all those podcasts and and uh, interviews that must uh, force you to keep it clean. Yeah, the thing is, um, I used to make jokes about being OCD, and certainly my wife did. But I actually watched a documentary on how severe OCD is, and it's, it's not. Joke. I, I, I know it's not a joke, and I just like clean things. But funnily <laughs> enough, there's sort of this push at the moment, and it's, and it's a real big economic issue about getting people back into the city and back into offices. And, you know, I've got so used to doing all our webinars and podcasts here where I know all the technology works and I don't have to fight for space in the office or go into a boardroom where someone's just going to walk in at any moment, um, you know, and there's other noise. And so I think um, people who have seen my lounge room are going to see a lot more of it. But when, <laughs> when Frontier is $5, the lounge room is going to change, I promise. 
there's again that's gonna be a wall of television right? <laughs> uh, thanks for hosting right. mate much appreciated yeah thanks for joining me um and for everyone else thank you for listening